I hid my disability for so long, for almost 20 years. The biggest stuff for me was literally going into a store and being able to not hide my disability. I stopped negotiating with myself. Motivation requires negotiation and a specific emotional state to do something. That's all it takes. You don't have to have this crazy Jocko Wilnick type mindset where you're just a hardcore Navy SEAL. Oh, you must have had an amazing network or an upbringing or anything. Like, I grew up, I grew up in the ghetto. My parents had no money. We went to like churches to get food and stuff. What does a, what does a $5,000 speaker look like? What does a $7,500 speaker look like? What does a $50,000 speaker look like? How can I look like that? All diets that are successful share one common principle and that's caloric control. A good speaker doesn't always have a prepared talk, but is always prepared to talk. Welcome to the Learn With All Show. That teaser was of Chris Rudin, typically on the show, which is for the everyday mammal. We learn about science, leadership, and how people build their changes to the world. Today with Chris, who is an author of The Upper Hand and one of the most sought after speakers around, we get to learn about his transition from hiding to standing out to being a paid speaker to helping others with diabetes with fitness and nutrition, books, his time competing on Titan Games with The Rock. Many of you and most of you will really enjoy this episode. Please subscribe, like, and comment. And finally, let's stay curious and learn about Chris Rudin. Is there something you've always wanted to like highlight or talk about that people don't normally like hit you with? I, I, there's always kind of like a highlight reel of stories that people ask you for. But I'm kind of curious, is there something that you don't normally get to talk about? Honestly, I think people people see the big stuff. They see the the exciting stuff, like the the magazines or the TV show or the records and all that. They see that. But what what I want more people to see and understand is like I hid my disability for so long, for almost 20 years. The biggest stuff for me was literally going into a store and being able to not hide my disability. So, I think when people see my name or my face they're like oh you did that tv show with the rock oh you lifted 675 pounds oh and i'm like the biggest feat i've ever accomplished was literally being able to not hide my disability while i'm going to buy soup you mm -hmm. know and that's what meant the most to me but i think a lot of people fixate on the explosions and the shiny stuff but to me that was the shiny stuff no, that I, I... was the moment that meant the most to me you know mm -hmm. so uh, i i wish more people kind of uh, saw that and were as excited as I am, but you know, yeah, no, I, I completely get it. It's and at the same time, I wonder if maybe they just don't know how to address the topic because, because I, yeah, I don't, I don't mind because I have disability as well. And I would have moments where like my entire arm would be swollen to the point where I couldn't move my fingers. And so yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about when you're walking out and I'd put like uh, mittens on or anything. <laughs> it's like, if anything, I was drawing more attention to it, but like, you just yeah. want to go about your day and, and, um, but do you, I think it was the di diabetes that made you realize that you needed it to change things. If you, um, yeah. if it wasn't for that, do you think you would have just continued going on, not, uh, just allowing yourself to be yourself or, or how do you that's think your a, life would have been going without that's that? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, type one diabetes was one of the many moments that led to me becoming who I am today. And I don't mean that in a cliche way, like becoming successful. I mean, becoming comfortable with who I am and really figuring out who I am and not being who I thought everyone else wanted me to be. So I think a lot of people are waiting for this Disney moment of like, poof, everything's amazing, winning the lotto, meeting the right person. It's always something that's going to change their lives. And I don't really believe that way. I believe um, many little things will lead up to that change, you know, if you allow it. So having diabetes put me in a hospital to where I was like, okay, I have to do something. This just got worse progressively. But 
do I want to make it worse myself? You know, mm-hmm. and in my keynotes, I often talk about when people get a flat tire, they don't set the car on fire. Yeah. You know, but we do that. And I had to figure out a way to stop doing that. And diabetes was a very harsh realization that, hey, man, the path you're going on is only going to get really hard if you keep doing what you're doing. Was it, um, so it was a good catalyst for change, but when you, when you were hiding yourself, and that's just like my just colloquialism for, you know, to summarize, but um, were there, were people reinforcing it in terms of like making you feel like you didn't belong? Or was it like in retrospect, do you think it was like entirely internal or do you think external was being pushed on you as well? I think, and to speak general before I speak specifically about myself, I think the majority of stuff is internal for most of us. It's the narrative we tell ourselves. And I have a quote behind me on the other wall that says, we often suffer in our imagination more than we do our reality. And it's true because we make up stories what people could believe. And even though it's a possibility, we convince ourselves that it's a fact. And something we've learned is feelings are not facts. Just because mm-hmm. you feel certain people are thinking a certain way about you, you're making this whole thing up in your head. Not only is it fake, but the feeling you're getting is real, which sucks. So for me personally, uh, people did not reinforce my need to hide mm-hmm. directly, but I would say indirectly they almost did because they allowed it. They'd never talked about it. It was the elephant in the room that was never talked about, and it was so obvious. And part of me, the selfish part of me wants to be like, oh, I wish people would have, you know, brought that to my attention, but that wasn't the responsibility. It was mine. Um, but sometimes reinforcing behaviors is not just saying they're okay. It's allowing them in the Mm -hmm. first place. So I feel like in a way, a lot of people accepted that I was hiding and that's just what it was. And that's what it felt like for 17 years. Makes sense. The, when I was, when I was going through college, the, I had, a. I was going through the ICU and ER as well. And, and I had teachers who weren't exact, were very against accommodating that and would like laugh and like, so it was like one of those things where it's like externally, I'm getting hit in a bunch of different, different places right now. Um, did, so it does sound, I mean, positive in that regard where like no one was like, uh, I'm forgetting the word, but it's a very obvious word where they're taking you and like separating you because of it. It's almost like, like segregating they, you. Yeah, or yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. My God. <laughs> so in the beginning, like especially middle school, middle school was terrible for everyone. But yeah. for me, I was definitely made fun of. I grew mm. up in a super poor area. So like uh, I was already I already stood out. And then, you know, from there, I literally had a disability that I didn't hide at the time. So I was made fun of for the way I looked. And I felt that, you know, I was in certain schools where, you know, Thanksgiving, you put your hand on a piece of paper and you use your other hand to trace around it to make a turkey. Well, my left hand turkey did not look like anyone else's turkey, you know? Um, And that was kind of embarrassing to me because I was like, man, I just wanted to, I just wanted to fit in. I want to do the assignment. You know, I'm the only kid in class who can't do the assignment because I physically can't, you know? And that was something I pushed back on a lot was I was so competitive. So I was like, yes, I can do this. I can do this. And it took me a long time to accept that there are certain things physically that I can't really do. I've learned to adapt around a ton of stuff, but there's some stuff I just can't do. And I have to be okay with that. Otherwise I'm fighting a situation that I can't control at all. And it's just exhausting my mental health and exhausting me as a person, you know? Mm-hmm. The Something I've noticed a lot in people is that like physical fitness seems to be a really good catalyst to, to like break up mental jam. I think like even if you have depression, for instance, they talk about like just start I- I- as much as you can. And um, 
just work out a little bit and do better every day. I'm wondering um, how quickly after like you started making these transitions to more healthier um, lifestyle and being where you could be more standing out um, where like fitness came into it. I know uh, eventually became like very, very great, you know, deadlifting and all these great things that you've been doing. But um, was it immediate after like being in the, the hospital or was it, I, mean, I guess if it was consistently there the entire time, but um, I'm curious if that was a part of like kind of helping you along as well, just like the the drive for the physical fitness that for many people seems to be like one of the key components that helps them get over that those humps. It definitely lit a fire under my ass to be like, okay, you got to do something and the world is doesn't owe you anything. So like, what are you going to do? And I was always that one-handed guy in a two-handed world that just existed, you know, and machines weren't made for me. So I had to find a way to adapt and it, it was tough um but everyone's different so i had to find how my differences could help me or just not hurt me more mm-hmm. and i got into fitness right after diabetes and i i saw magazines of like people with muscle and i was told i couldn't do that because of my disability and especially because my diabetes how hard it was to like manage so i took that as a challenge and i was like all right let me let me learn and i wanted to bodybuild so bad but i was like this tiny little 140 pound kid in high school i didn't know you know what i was doing so I was trying to build muscle. I was drinking disgusting protein shakes and reading magazines of like bad information. But I eventually got strong enough to start deadlifting and squatting and bench pressing, finding ways to balance like the bar on my residual limb. And I did my first ever powerlifting competition. I ended up winning. And then from there, I just kept going and going and going. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I actively made the choice to be healthy. I think I was, I was more desperate and flailing at that point mentally and the gym was the one space where I could like calm my mind um and focus on what I'm doing instead of focus on all the other worries doubts fears that were going on in my head so the gym became kind of like therapy for me and I fell in love with the art all of that but really it was a mental thing and it Mm -hmm. still is to this day it's the same same for me when I was going through the similar experiences um I didn't I wasn't necessarily doing it intentionally it was just like one thing I could do You know, it's like one thing you can do is, you know, you can lift a a weight or something like now, like the gym is kind of like a religious thing thing for me. It's like some people go to church, like I go to gym or like I exercise to some extent and it feels really good to have that reinforcement. Um, And at the same time, I know people that when they're when they're um, they first start, like they'll like you say in a number of your talks, like they'll try to do a lot. It's more about being consistent. So but I'm curious when you when you did start, were there times where you like you stopped or you, you, I don't know, like, uh, reached a point where you kind of gave up or you had like a valley of like not doing what you're supposed to be doing to continue working out effectively. And if so, like, how did you like convince yourself to have the discipline to keep going when you're, you're still working it out? I think that's one of the big thing. One of the, some of the things I've noticed is that when people first start going, they'll maybe do it for like two weeks. And then like the motivation is like, oh, I don't know. I'm not seeing anything. It's like, why am I not 10 pounds lighter in two weeks? But you know, it's like, it takes time. But I'm curious, did you face that as well? Like what, what were some of your like strategies to get past that? You used some interesting words I would want to call back. Originally you used uh, the word discipline and then you switched to the word motivation. And we're mm-hmm. going to talk about that. Yeah, they're two different um, things. It, very different and very different cues and very different actions from that. Um, no one is motivated to go to work. No one. No one. There's days where I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to do anything. I want to lay in bed and tell me, I know anyone listening agrees with me. There are many days where like, this is it. This is my last day. I'm quitting. I'm going to sleep. I'll wake up in a few days, but discipline kicks in and you're like, I have to go. You tell yourself you have to go, you know, and I'm going to ask you now, do you have a job? Yeah. 
Of course. Do you need to work? No, but I know where you're going, but I, I like exactly. working. I love working. Exactly. So even if you didn't like working, you had a job, you need to make money, need to make money to support your house, whatever. You don't need to, you could be homeless. And if you could be homeless, but you decided not to be, it's a choice. So if you have the ability to turn a desire into a necessity with working, you could do that with fitness. Uh, the problem is discipline is a choice one it, and i'm not trying to be hardcore or anything like that it's literally one it's like going to the job you you go you huff and puff but you still make it there was many times where i went to the gym and i half-assed it i quarter-assed it and i just was at the gym because i knew i needed to go and it's better than doing nothing so i went to the gym even did a few sets maybe walk on a treadmill and then go home i at least did it and i proved to myself that everything told me not to go but i still went i stopped negotiating with myself and that is the difference between motivation and discipline. Motivation requires negotiation and a specific emotional state to do something. Discipline doesn't require any prerequisites to get stuff done. You have to do it. Just do it anyways. Just do it anyways. I follow every thought with just do it anyways. I don't feel like doing this. Do it anyways. Easier said than done, better done than said. We can get into that conversation. But at the end of the day, just commit to it like you do your job like you do the other responsibilities that you never give up on even when you want to because motivation comes after action not before you get motivated as you keep going you don't wait to be motivated to keep going did it how, how long i think that's a like a time horizon is also one of those things for developing these types of confidence in yourself to know it'll work out did how long did it take you before you you did have like some level of confidence in pushing through to keep going with your goals I love that you said that. That makes me so happy. Uh, to this day, there's still no confidence that it's going to work out. Okay, that's good. It doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist. I don't know the future. But I, I know two things. And I think Ashton Kutcher said something similar along these lines. Uh, could be completely someone else. I could be butchering this. But um, if you do nothing, you're guaranteed nothing will happen. If you do something, you might get to your goal. I will take a might over a definitely not any day. Any day. So I knew if I did nothing, I'm definitely not going to get there. But if I did something, I might get there. There was no point in my beginning to lift weights. I, I have two fingers on my left hand and a shorter left arm. I had no clue how I was going to lift up a bar, let alone deadlift 675 pounds when the majority of people don't deadlift that much. Anyways, mm -hmm. how was I going to do that? I could have never connected those dots. It's easy to connect them looking backwards. But for me, I was like, okay, if I could do 135 pounds, That'd be amazing. I did that. And I was like, maybe I could go a little bit more. And I just kept, I just kept having healthy doubt about where my limitations were. And that's all it takes. You don't have to have this crazy Jocko Wilnick type mindset where you're just a hardcore Navy SEAL. You don't have to be that person. Um, and you don't have to have these crazy tactics and rituals and stuff. Really just ask yourself, like, will I look back on this decision and be happy? That's it. Will this decision make me proud going forward? If I don't go to the gym, if I don't do the stuff I said I want to do, if I don't start that podcast, if I don't share that story, when I look back on this, will I be proud or not? And use that as a guiding principle for your actions. Stay disciplined. Use that. They'll solve 90% of your issues. Mm -hmm. um, what, what role were your social groups? Were you lucky enough to have people in your environment that were reinforcing of this? Or, or did you have to kind of... Uh make some changes in terms of your environment to get the support you needed. This is probably something I don't talk about enough. And it's something I would really like to start talking about more. I've always been kind of a lonely person in that sense of I've never been a big social person. I'm 
extremely introverted uh and which is weird if you see all the stuff i do in like social media or uh any of my career for a living i speak with people but there's a reason i love being on stage because it separates me from a crowd i have never been one to have massive groups of friends i've always been a one or two friend kind of person and usually my friends aren't really into what i'm into like the gym or business or anything like that so a lot of it has been kind of lonely in that path of I know I need to do it. And there's some people that come and join sometimes randomly, then they go out of my life. And then there's new people that come in. But it's almost like those are the variables. I don't have any constants in terms mm -hmm. of like social community. Um, so when people see that, they're like, Oh, you must have had an amazing network or an upbringing or anything like I grew up, I grew up in the ghetto, you know, <laughs> my parents had no money, we went to like churches to get food and stuff like I, I didn't grow up with a, a, a mentor. I didn't grow up on how to build a business or how to do any of this stuff. None of my family members were bodybuilders or powerlifters. Um, it's harder when you don't have a network or support system, but we do have resources. And the biggest resource you have is being resourceful in itself to Google. You know, I always joke around like, oh, you could technically get a Harvard education just by looking up their syllabus, renting the books and reading them yourself. That's true. You could doesn't mean you want to i know i don't want to but if i wanted to i could you know mm -hmm. um we have access and whether you have access at home or you're unfortunate enough to not really have access at home and you can make it to a public library there is access available to a lot of people um we argue that we definitely need more access and more communities but resources are abundant the taking advantage of those resources are not quite so abundant mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of libraries. Ben Franklin, he was you know, he was the guy he started in America. I wish there was more libraries. Uh, there, anyone listening, go to a library. I guarantee there's like they'll like there's some that'll rent you uh, computers that you can take home yeah, to like you, work you, on your you, stuff. Exactly. There's so much access to resources that are available. Yeah. So even in lower socioeconomic areas, there's so many educational uh, materials that can be provided and. That's why I just encourage people. Self education is, is such a huge part of my career and my growth. I got my degree in exercise science, but I don't use that. You know, I speak for a living now and I travel the country. My mom still probably doesn't even understand what I do for a living. You know, <laughs> so I travel around the country and speak about like overcoming adversity or diversity and inclusion or change management. And I'm fortunate enough to, to love what I do and have impact. But all of it was building the career myself because I never knew a speaker. And if I asked you right now, you know, what motivational speakers do you personally know? Not many people know them. Or if they do, they're like, oh, they probably get paid like $5, you know, a month to speak at schools. So uh, sometimes you got to create your own path. Yeah. I know one now. His name's Chris. Yeah, there you go. I got you. <laughs> I got one. Uh, actually, related to uh, speaking, there was a story you told in one of your interviews where there's a moment where you did 30 of them, like 30 speaking gigs, and no one was paying you. And so you gave up and you went to like this place and the guy was like, go do what you're meant to do. And so you started again. But I'm curious, how did you go from 30 non-paying to, you know, uh, now paying? Like, what was like, how did you shift it so you actually could get paid just in terms of speaking? Um, if I remember the story right, like it was like yeah. 30 non yeah, I did. Yeah. I did a ton, like 30 or more free gigs. And the only difference between the non-paid gigs and the paid gigs was at one point I started asking for money. <laughs> <laughs> and people like there's no way it was that literally literally i had one person offer me an honorarium on the phone and i was like what the 
what the hell is an honorarium? I'm Googling it, you know, <laughs> and like, it's like speaker fee. I'm like, oh yeah, just that's whatever the last speaker did. And he's like, okay, is, is two grand. That's what he did. So is that okay? I'm like, yeah, I got off the phone and I like lost my mind. Cause I'm like $2,000 to speak. Like I used to get in trouble for speaking in the class and now mm-hmm. this person wants to pay me like, this is wild. And then I was like, okay, maybe I should start asking for honorariums, you know? And then I started doing that and people like, yeah, we can do a thousand. We can do 2000. I'm like, that's insane to get paid for like 60 minutes, a thousand, two thousand dollars. I'm like, that's wild. Mm -hmm. And then I did the same thing I did with the deadlift. Healthy doubt. What happens if I could do more? What happens if I could get paid more? I started seeing some speakers were making five thousand, ten thousand dollars. I'm like, ten thousand. No way. But maybe. But no way. I'm like, that's not real. Over the course of the years, I built my business. I set myself up. What does a what does a $5,000 speaker look like? What does a $7,500 speaker look like? What does a $50,000 speaker look like? How can I look like that? So I started doing more podcasts. I started getting on podcasts and doing news interviews and reaching out to PR people. And as I was making money, reinvesting in my business to get better equipment, better lights and better videos and I got to the point, you know, this year I I am that $10,000 speaker now, like that's my normal fee. And it's so incredible to look back on that kid or that guy who wanted to work for a supplement store at $8 an hour. And he was told no, because he had too much to offer. And then he stopped being free. He started seeing his value, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like a lot of us end up doing that. We, we doubt our value. Then we get a little taste of value and we slowly build it back up. But the whole time the value was there. It's just your inability to recognize it. If you offered someone a hundred dollar bill for $10, everyone would take that because they see the value in it. But it's, if you don't, that's, that's on you, you know? So it took me a while to really realize like what I'm doing, what you're doing, what people are doing is worth something, whether it's money, time, something. And, uh, I just started charging my value. Mm-hmm. I, I I pictured you when you were describing it of uh, someone be like, oh, do you want an honorarium? And you're just like saying, mm, interesting as you like. Furiously, I'm, <laughs> I'm literally I'm talking on the phone. They were on speaker. I remember I was in Coral Springs, which is a little north of me in my backyard pacing. Literally, like I have one thumb. I'm like one thumb going in trying to Google like what the hell this honorarium is and like. It was one of those moments like, ah, yes, yes, yes. So that's really good. Uh, and just trying to divert the conversation until I could figure out what that meant. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely a moment. I'll never forget that conversation because that was the start of deciding that I was worth being paid for what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Is it like a in some in some industries, if you know the nomenclature, like the phraseology, you can get through it. Did you need to know like honorarium to like get paid? Is that like <laughs> one of the cheats? I think that's one of them is to know some of the phrasing, um, to know some of the bigger stuff. Like as I moved my way through, uh, learning about speakers bureaus, learning about, um, sending proposals instead of just emailing someone, Hey, I charge $3,000, like (laughs) putting effort into like what you're going to give. So people see value. I think there's an element of sales in everything. There's an element of charisma. There's an element of, uh, relatability. So how do you listen to what you're saying you're like oh i want to hire someone for a speaking fee for a speaking event that's not what they really want they don't want to hire a speaker for an event what they truly want and here is where i always like find out people's needs they want to bring someone into this company that makes them look good that's what they want they want to bring someone in that makes them look good 
as the person planning the event. So as a speaker, how can I make them look good, one, and how can I give them the confidence that I'm going to make them look good? It's the same thing with weight loss. No one hires a personal trainer to lose weight. No one does. And everyone's like, what do you mean? No one does. Because if I helped you lose 50 pounds, but you looked the same, would you be happy? No. Because you didn't want to lose the gravitational force. You wanted to look like you lost the weight. You wanted the look of the weight loss. But even more than that, I'm going to say that's a lie too. You don't want the look of the weight loss. You want the feel that you think the look of the weight loss will give you. Mm -hmm. You want the feeling. That's the true motivator is the feeling of whether it's confidence, health, something. There's a feeling you've attached to an end goal. That's what most people want. And when I found that, I was like, okay, how can I serve that? Not what you're telling me, but what you're truly asking me. That kind of changed the game for me. Are there, is it like a, a questions roughly that you ask? Or is it what you analyze after meeting them or in preparation of meeting them that lets you see that, that, that of what, what they actually want? I think a lot of people, and in the beginning, I made mistakes. I learned from my mistakes. In the beginning, I would tell people what I do and what I offer. Mm. No one cares what you offer. They care what they get. And that might sound selfish, but it's true. So instead of me telling them about myself and how amazing I am, I would say, hey, what, what are you looking for? What do you need for this event to be successful? Describe a perfect event. You know, what's one thing or three things you want your audience members to walk away with? They just told me everything I need to build the best presentation possible. I'm, I learned that in the beginning, it was very easy for me to talk. Now, it's much more effective, productive, and profitable to hear people talk and to listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, you'd be surprised at how little you have to say to go about the world. It's actually really nice because I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert too. Yeah. It's so it's like, yeah, I just can just sit here. I just, it, people want to, yeah, they want people, uh, especially in the, in the environments you're talking about, they, they want you to be successful because then it makes them successful. So they, they're going to tell you what they want. Like most people do not hide what they want. They're very no, upfront about it. They're very upfront. And honestly, I've talked to people at events where I barely say anything. They'll come to me after the talk and they're like, oh, you know, they're talking to me and I'm like asking questions. I'm making eye contact, body language towards them and I'm listening to them. And I'm asking them about what they're saying. They leave and they're like, you were the nicest person I've ever met. You were so amazing. You're so great. And in my head, I'm like, what did I say? What did I say? I listened to you. I gave you my time and attention and you think I'm amazing. And it's almost sad because so many people don't give their time and attention. So when you give that to someone, they think you're incredible. There's the science of likability or anything like that is to literally listen better, mm -hmm. to be engaging. It's, you don't have to be amazing. You have to be engaging. And I think that's what people think like, oh, I've never done a TV show. People wouldn't like me like that. I've, I'm not that social. Me neither. I hide in my house 24 seven, you know, uh, but I listen to people when they talk. And as a podcaster, I'm sure you do the same. You give people like me a position to speak. We speak and you listen, ask questions and people love that kind of stuff. That's why they love this. Cause it's like a true authentic conversation from someone who's genuinely interested in what other people have to say mm -hmm. for the purpose of your listeners. I think that's incredible. Have you ever read the book? Never split the difference. I think you'd love it. Yes, I did. Yes. I have it right here on my wall somewhere. I have it uh, I literally right next to me. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. They have a, they just came out with a masterclass. It, oh, some, some libraries uh, give people free access to let I'm telling you guys go to the library. They give you free access to masterclass and I checked them all out. The, the masterclass is actually pretty good too. That's yeah. incredible. I yeah. love that book. It was yeah. a phenomenal negotiation book. 
Yeah, there's, I recommend it to everyone. And the people I recommend it to try not to say that they've read the book because <laughs> they feel like someone's going to know what they're doing. But like they've, yeah. they've negotiated like million dollar deals from it. It's like, read it. It's great. I anyone, promise if yeah. you combine that book with something called the like switch, uh, hmm. L-I-K-E switch, it's by an FBI agent. And it's all about like body language and uh, about communication to really get close with people. Those two things combined make you the most dangerous person socially and business sense. But it's cool because th these are real resources, again, resources that you can get in the library that you can learn how to be more social in certain situations that you need to or want to and how to negotiate better life for yourself, whether it's business or personal mental health. It all is the same thing. I can sell you an object, a service or an idea. All of that comes into play with negotiation and communication. And that's why I love being a communicator for a living. I get to help people with those three aspects of their life yeah i think something that i hear in all your interviews and what we're talking about today is like it's not you know like it doesn't sound like you seek perfection and then speak it sounds like in a lot of situations like it, 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 just in terms of myself as well like um i've noticed that people will think that they need like x before they can do y and they like build up like i need to write the perfect email and it has to be perfect before i do something um but there's an element of like uh if you just try it, like if you just put yourself out there, like you kind of figure it out. Like, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people don't put themselves out is that they think they're going to be rejected or they're going to fail or something, or like they, they haven't done enough to like do whatever. And I like a lot of your questions you ask yourself is like, what, okay, then well, what do y'all have to do to be good enough uh, to do it? But I've noticed in a lot of situations, all you have to do is just try. Like one thing I used to do when I started writing emails to get people on the podcast, I'd write one email that I thought was good enough. And then I'd write the next one and then I'd just tweak it a little bit and I'd tweak it and by the, by like the hundredth person I was emailing, each of them were different. Like I wasn't like a uh, carbon copy and everything, but by the end of it, it was like, there's a really tight email, <laughs> but the first person still liked it too. Yeah. Um, so you just kind of like, uh, you experiment and you, and you find it as long as, as you go. Um, I was, I am curious. Um, did you do any voice training? Like you have a really good voice. Did you do any training on that? I, I actually don't believe that I do, but that's also a personal limiting belief that most people have when they hear their voice. I'm definitely not a singer, um, but I've learned the power of tone and cadence. And those were learning tactics from speaking. So I did Toastmasters. That's like a free course you can do and join local groups and learn how to speak. I also watched a ton of YouTube videos on how professional speakers speak, how to remove filler words like like, um, and, uh, you know, how to speak with impact. And that comes from cadence and tone and rhythm. Uh, I'm more of a charismatic speaker. And I've learned how to do that just from being personable, which is weird, because I'm not extroverted, but I am personable when I talk with people. So I think some of it is natural, some of it is built where I've learned communication tactics on how to engage with people. But definitely voice wise, uh, definitely no strategic uh, work that I've done. Okay, no, it sounds great. So I mean, oh, if, awesome. That's you great. know, don't 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 mess with how it works. I guess. Yeah. Um, is there anything? Uh, is there anything else that you do prepare for? Like after you're in the door, yeah, they're excited for you to come. Um, what do you What do you do to get yourself ready to 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 speak on whatever you're going to speak on? Like, do you have um, like a slideshow that you do for yourself? Like, I mean, kind of, I'm kind of curious, like, what you do to prepare yourself for speaking. I so I am a. I love to be authentic in the moment. And when I prepare my talks, I maybe at most have like 10 bullet points, if that, in my notes. Um, no slideshow. And I speak genuinely. 
as it comes related to the topic that I'm doing. I love speaking in that sense. And the mentor I had a long time ago when I first started speaking, he said, a good speaker doesn't always have a prepared talk, but is always prepared to talk. And I love that because that's how I learned to speak from the heart and speak genuinely. And when I tell a story, it's, it could be the same story that I've told, but I'm always in it and I'm always present. So being present is huge. Now, I will say a lot of people like you've given hundreds of talks. There's no way you get nervous. I get nervous every damn time, every damn time because it's normal. But I convince myself that that nervousness is excitement because it's a very similar feeling. And I just say, I'm not nervous to do this talk. I can't fail because I'm giving value from my heart. How can you mess that up? You know, what I stutter, what I mess up a word. I'm not trying to remember anything because I'm speaking genuinely, you know? I don't get nervous when I'm having a conversation with someone about something that I know. So why would I do that the same way in front of people? More people doesn't change my message. I could speak to one person. I could speak to 10,000 people. It's the same delivery because I believe it. You know, mm -hmm. it's much easier to speak when you're coming from a place of authenticity and not trying to screw people over. <laughs> yeah. It makes uh, life much easier. Uh, yes. So it, when you're in the moment, do you worry though? Like when you're talking to people, it goes away. It completely goes away when I'm yeah. speaking. I'd say my biggest worry would be going to like a party or a social event where people are like hanging out and I'm not speaking and I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I could speak for 90 minutes, but you put me in a cocktail room and I'm like, I'm just going to go hang out by the snacks, you know? So my specialty is speaking on a stage. That's where I'm most comfortable, whether it's a workshop or a keynote. I love that stuff. And I know that's where my true specialty is or where my weakness is, is trying to build the social small talk interactions that's my harder part, but we all have strengths and weaknesses, you know? And sometimes people are like, but you're a speaker. You should be good in any situation. I'm like, what? Don't put that weight on me, that expectation on me. I know what I'm good at and I know what I need to work on and that's it. Yeah. The, uh, no, I'm the same way. Like if I'm in a social environment, I'm either really quiet or I'm like, so what do you think about the new tax policy? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, do you like bread? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't know what to say, but if it's a genuine conversation with a smaller group, I, I can speak on things that I know, but I'm very hesitant to speak on anything I don't know because I don't know it. And I never want to come across as like a know-it-all. Yeah. I know a lot about the things I know about and I'm quiet about the things I don't. And I think that's a that's a good skill to have. Yeah, and also the the questioning nature. You can just ask people questions. They're, it's like, I already know everything I'm going to say. I don't know what they're going to say. I'm, I'm much more interested in that. That's exactly. also part of, part of the problem as well. It's like I'm kind of I'm kind of curious what you know uh, Amy or whomever is around me is going to say. I, yeah. I, I don't want to talk about my childhood stories. I already know what they are. <laughs> like, exactly, you know? exactly. So it's much easier to ask questions in that case. And you know, you ask them about their life. They want to talk. People want to speak. So you just position them to speak, and that that's helped me a lot in social situations is figuring out who they are, what they do, and it saves me in some situations. Have you ever uh, read anything by Carl Jung on terms of archetypes? Carl Jung, he did the shadow self. Yeah. 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 So I did. I have one. I forgot what it's called, but it was when he was first talking about the shadow selves and it was really interesting, really fascinating. Yeah. I, I interview a lot of people and I talk to a lot of people. I'm starting to like internally form like a series of because like at a certain point, like there's not like an, everyone is like infinitely unique. Like there's a lot of like variation, but the people who do kind of fall into like archetypes which is kind of interesting in terms of like, yeah. oh, OK, like this is how you like to be spoken to. And then you can kind yeah. of address it like. It's, it's very interesting that way. I love but that. Though. When you, when you are speaking on stage, do you do the technique where you speak to one person or do you speak to everybody? So I, I speak, I pick maybe three or four people out of okay. the audience and those are my go-tos. 
Um, I sometimes scan and still like engage, but I try and pick people who are relatively maintaining eye contact because it is a genuine conversation. I'm not speaking to a group. I'm speaking to an individual multiple times. Have you ever like seen someone just playing on their phone and just walked up to them and just stare them down until they, they paid attention? I, just so to, like I've get everyone's never, attention? I've never, I can say like confidently uh, when I do my talks, I, I start my, a lot of my talks pretty explosively. So like I get their attention. Good. Yeah. And I tend to keep people's attention. There was one event, this guy specifically, I remember he looked like he was falling asleep and I was like, what the like what that's never happened to me like what's going on i found out he was plastered from the night before and he was just having a really rough time so it made me feel better to find that out but uh i try and maintain a communication so it's not a lecture yeah. you know i know what it was like being in school and having a teacher that you were like oh my god this is terrible you're like watching the clock and stuff but i also know what it's like to have a teacher that i was excited to see because i was like she makes this class so amazing what was the difference for communication style, you know? And that's what I try and emulate. Makes sense. So the, one thing I have I've noticed is that you're really good, like like I mentioned a couple of times, at like having these great phraseologies, which, which I guess is like maybe like why you wrote a book because you can put them all in one place in capitalize in your, your whole life. I'm, I'm curious, um, are there sections of the book that you still pull, like that, like that walk with you as you go through your day? So there's stuff that I put in that book specifically because I use it regularly. Okay. So it's not like I put it in the book and then I use it. I use it and I happen to put that in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, so that whole circle of concern versus influence thing, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Um, basically, instead of focusing on what you're concerned with, focus on what you can influence. If you can't influence it, it's not your problem. And that is a, a daily thing where I have to put my mind through stuff. A lot of people, and I hope you're not going to be one of them, a lot of people ask me like, how did you overcome your struggles? <laughs> like, how, how did you overcome? And I'm like, guys, there is no finish line to mental health. There's no finish line to this stuff. Like, I still have my disability. How did I overcome it? Well, I'll tell you if it ever happens. It's a daily thing, you know? I just, I've learned to not let those like bad thoughts win the whole day. They might win small moments, but I still work on those. And those intrusive thoughts, we can't stop intrusive thoughts, but we can control them and we can learn to domesticate emotion around feelings and understand that not all feelings are real. So I use a lot of those concepts in the book on a daily basis to make sure that I'm like grounded and not letting the shadow self or that kind of side of me win. I, I think um, uh, like adversity, getting over something and death is very similar in terms of people are always like, how long until I get like if you ever lost a loved one? It's horrible, but like how how long until I got you feel cool? Like you're okay with it? It's like you never really feel okay with it. You just get used to it. Like that's, that's the thing. Yeah, that's really what it is. And I I did a post that went like super viral on uh, Twitter, and I was talking about healing, and I was like, healing doesn't mean the problem doesn't exist anymore. It just means you're not controlled by it anymore. The problem is there. The issue was there. The pain or whatever was caused was there. But you learn to not be controlled by the pain when it comes up again. You know, you lose someone, you lose an opportunity, uh, you're hurt by something. The goal is not to erase memories or to erase happenings. It's to manage them. And that's, I feel like that's not proper mental health, but that's optimal mental health. It's uh, interesting. I've just, I'm rereading uh, Marcus Rallis's The Meditations. And they're One just of like, my favorite books, yeah. Stoicism, is what changed my life. So, yeah. 
there's a there's an entire section where he he's just talking about how like only think about what is necessary and in every other situation before you even think about actions that are necessary just start thinking what is necessary and i was i was going for a walk and so i just started thinking is this a necessary thought <laughs> like what am i doing <laughs> it can be a little like, exhausting this, when this you is, try to cut everything out you yeah know? i was like this this I, I can see the value of it i'm gonna do like like 30 percent effectiveness and then for the rest of the day and see how that feels like yeah. um it was a very different day like it's it's a very nice experiment in that way it's crazy because we that narrative internal narrative we tell ourselves it's important and then if it's important and we don't have it we're already in stress we're already suffering you know because of the story we told ourselves and the severity of it when in reality if you can't do anything about it it's not your problem and if you can do something about it it's not your problem because then do it you know then you don't have a problem at all either way you don't have problems and people are like, well, that's not true. No, it is. It might not be easy because you have to do work, but it is simple in concept. If you can solve a problem, you should solve it. And if you can't, it's not your problem to solve. Do you, um, I've noticed that people tend, when they get stuck in their heads, like if it if it was in reality, like the same concept was in reality, like they would be like, oh, that's wrong. Um, do you ever like write, do journaling or something to like get out the thoughts in your head into like a physical realm so you can like, interact with it in a different way so i tried doing that and my therapist yelled at me because it just became a to-do list mm. <laughs> so I, she was like write down everything you think in the morning i'm like i need to go get milk i need to write <laughs> talk i need and she's like that's not what i meant um for me i think it's processing in my head and going through and i use like this weird type system of like dealing with it in the moment so i like kind of visualize like a stop sign when i had these racing circular or like spiraling thoughts and i picture this big stop sign coming up in my face and then i'm like uh, sometimes i use the mel robbins approach the countdown from five which kind of tricks your brain to be present in the moment um but i i look at it i'm like can i do anything about it now is what i'm doing helping or hurting that that question is like damn it's hurting me but it feels nice but it hurts it's almost weird, right? We like feel nice about making ourselves feel like shit, you know? Um, but then I have to bring myself down. Like, this is not something I can focus on now. I know it's my brain trying to protect me by saying, remember, we're scared of this. Don't get hurt. Don't do this. It's your brain trying to help. But sometimes that can be hurtful, you know, in the long run. So I give myself permission to let things go a lot. Mm -hmm. um, just in terms of like uh, priorities in your life, just is a bit of a transition. Um, are you focusing, uh, like speaking is a clearly a big thing in your life. How much is like business and other things? Like what are the, like, I guess the pillars of what, what's going on with you? Speaking is definitely my main focus. My next step is to help other speakers become speakers. Like as a profession, I see a lot of people speaking as a means to sell something. Hmm. Um, and not enough people who want to become speakers as speakers, as the career itself, instead of a medium to move something. Not that that's a bad thing, but I think we need more stories and impact to help other people. So I want to help people become paid speakers so that they can do it for a living. That's my next step for next year. I also have like a protein bar company and I do that, but I would say my main focus is speaking and uh, spinoffs from that, like consulting or social media around overcoming adversity. Everything is a spinoff around the three main topics that I talk about. Makes sense. Uh, if the voice wasn't taken, you could, you know, I could see you as like a very strong person with the voice underneath you for Brandon. <laughs> That'd be incredible. That'd be incredible. <laughs> yeah, you have a good voice. Uh, I like Love it. Love that.
I yeah, if you did like audiobooks or something, I'd, I'd enjoy it. I'm um, actually working on an audiobook of my book right now. So it, you're using your own voice? I am. Yeah. I'm bi- I'm big on that. Anytime I do an audiobook, I'm going to use my voice because it needs to be in my tone. Yeah. It needs to be uh, even uh, Ryan Holiday is one of my favorite authors, uh, aside from Brianna Weiss, but she's my absolute favorite. Um, but Ryan Holiday did a book and it was read by someone else and I hated it. I hated it so much. But when it was his reading, I loved it because it was him, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's the guy I've seen on YouTube. That's his voice reading his message. And I just connected with it so much more. So I really love when it's in the author's voice. Yeah, there's a couple by Neil Gaiman where he does it in his voice and it's so much better than I love it. the other person. I, I have I don't think I can even remember the first one. I, I listened to the first like like chapter of it. I was like, well, this, this is nice. I can't, yeah, I can't do it though. Yeah. It, it's so weird to me. Like even, uh, Brene Brown or Vanessa Van Edwards love her. I love their voices and they're not perfect voice actors, which makes it almost better. You know, that's what I like. Yeah. The imperfections of it. Yeah. The highs and the lows. Like it's yeah. like a conversation like you've been talking about. It doesn't sound like a, a movie reading where it's like back in the day, like some deep, like, I don't want that. I don't want more. Morgan Freeman might be a little cool, but like, I really want to know the person too. I feel more connected with it. Yeah. Makes sense. The, um, well, just touch on your business real quick. Um, what, what's like the, you're like the chief marketing guy, right? Or what's yes. your role? Yeah. yeah I'm okay. the co-owner and the CMO. Have you guys thought about, uh, like plant-based in terms of, uh, your bars? I've not eaten them. So I, you know, they, yeah. they already are. I'm sorry, but we um, have one plant-based bar. Uh, it's our vegan bar. And, uh, we're reformulating it right now. We ended up selling out of all our products. So we're out of stock for like three months, especially because of supply chain issues and all the thing that's been going on in the world. Um, but we restock Monday. Well, coming up in a few days. And um, we are developing a second vegan plant-based bar. All our bars are made with like uh, organic nut butters, but we use uh, grass-fed whey isolate. So for our vegan or plant-based people they have one bar right now that they can use and we're hopefully adding another bar in the next few months makes sense um is there have you have you been following at all like what this mr beast guy's been doing uh there's like there's a youtube guy his name is mr beast he yeah made like a bar uh have you been following that at all i have not seen i didn't know he had a bar yeah he has a like a he started a, a like a candy bar thing he just got a walmart That's i've cool. been following it because it's like this is really interesting how he's how he's doing this that's and so I was awesome. just gonna I was gonna ask you your opinion of it, but if you don't know, it's fine. I'll, oh, that's I'll, I'll link you to it I'm later. I'm gonna check that out as soon as I'm done with this. That's really cool. Yeah, how he's doing is very uh, compelling. Uh, I, I like it. Like even I, I've gone on my way and it's like I'm, I'm buying one on on like awesome. uh, this weekend. Yeah. Um. But is uh have, have you onshored like in terms of like uh, simplifying your supply chain to like are you bringing it to like more non to distributed so place we don't we don't have a big uh answer for that yet we're still importing but we're importing at higher amounts of ingredients yeah. so everything is formulated like and finalized stateside it's local to us so we get to go to the manufacturers and make sure everything is like the right process all of our ingredients are like natural and healthy um, but it is tough because of cost and to compete in this market it has to be affordable to the consumer but the margins on ingredients has been tougher and tougher so uh, business has been a very big game of adaptation and figuring out ways to still maintain your brand identity and value without caving to the prices that are increasing drastically yeah it this is kind of like a weird way to think of this question but what made you think that uh you had something unique to go into a market that's so saturated like what was 
Like what, what made you get, what gave you that confidence? I love the idea of saturated markets. A lot of people get afraid of saturated markets. They see, oh, that market's saturated, so it won't work. No market is too saturated for a good product. When markets are saturated, it usually means that they're saturated with bad products. That's the reality. Tons of people are doing it, but we can't say tons of people are amazing. We can't say tons of people are number one or number 10, you know? there's a very shallow depth of field for people who are successful in a saturated market. And it's usually because most people just want to hop into the market and don't do it to their most effective way, or they don't know who their customer is. They're just trying to make money. One, we have an incredible story to position ourselves to establish trust with the community. And if you notice, I'm not even talking about the product yet because people have to trust community is everything. You know, when it comes to creating some sort of sustainable culture or long-term like relationship, when we created our product, we wanted to use healthy ingredients. We wanted it to be small enough because a lot of people who do protein bars, they end up eating half of it, folding it in their purse or gym bag and it melts. And, you know, you have this bar that's like massive and you're only going to eat half of it. Um, we didn't want that. We wanted something that people could eat quickly on the go. And we didn't want to sacrifice taste for health or vice versa. A lot of protein bars taste like a punishment. It's a reality, you know? Um, they're either so healthy and amazing, but they taste terrible, or they're pretty good, but their health profile or their macros are just awful. We're like, there has to be an answer for this. There has to be some sort of in-between. And we wanted to create dessert flavor bars because if we could get someone to replace one candy bar with something like this, we're doing our job. So all of that kind of came together with my co-owner being a, uh, a yacht chef and we found a way to make healthy taste good. That's interesting. The, um, yeah. just, just, just as a quick aside, cause I don't, what is a macro and why is it? Macro. So ma when I say macro, I mean macronutrients and that's the main three nutrients that determine calories. So all calories come from three main nutrients, proteins, carbs, and fats. Okay. Um, so if you, if you look at the back of any nutrition label, you can figure out the calories based on the proteins, carbs, and fats. That's interesting. I'm going to do that after this call. Yeah. So basically carbs have four calories per gram, protein has four calories per gram and fat has nine calories per gram, which is why a lot of people were scared of fat, not because it's fattening, but it just has the highest density of calories. doesn't mean it's bad. It just means more dense. So we created a balanced nutrient profile so that it could help people fill up but at the same time fill up with the right stuff it's um have you guys considered or played around with the like the cell agriculture type stuff where like they they build it in a lab they grow it in a lab like the i have not that's really cool though that sounds fascinating yes i have a friend cell agri everyone ahmed i i'm, I'm i mentioned to you two dollars but uh i oh, was yeah. just talking to him yesterday uh there's a bunch of conferences on this where they're like they're growing uh, the, like, if you ever heard of the impossible burger that's at yeah, Burger King, yeah. yeah, it tastes just like a normal burger. That one's plant-based. A lot of them say they're cell ag where they can grow uh, in a Petri dish. The, well, it's not a Petri dish. They, it's like, actually, it's really interesting, um, to grow it. You ever seen like a microbrewer brewery, yeah, like those yeah. giant metal things, they, they make them in that and, and like a system like that. And it comes out, well, well, some of them do in terms of like the one of them that I'm thinking of it is made like that. So you actually can like make it in like microbrewery. Um, but that's there's a lot awesome. going on. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a link to it. Yeah, but, uh, send me that. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. The um, Well, the neat thing is, and this is kind of related, um, they, there's like a guy who's making, I think he's making elephant. Uh, I think he's making elephant um, or whale. He's making like something fun. He's in Australia. 
but I was just wondering if you could, um, is there anything that you've always wanted to eat that you haven't, or like, there's like a, like a, a secret thing that you love to eat since we're talking about food and I love cooking or making things that are interesting. Um, is there, do you have like a, a secret guilty pleasure that most people like, if it's just like a 20 ounce steak, that's great too. Uh, so I'm known as the donut guy. I okay. am obsessed with donuts. I have a donut tattoo on my leg with an, uh, insulin pump in it. Um, I, anytime I travel, I look for, I would say two main things when I, tra- three main things when I travel around the country, I look for donuts. I look for birria tacos and I look for a good old fashioned. Those are the three things when I travel around, if I can find those, I will always have those. So I'm obsessed with birria tacos. Um, I love all kinds of food. I cook as well, but birria tacos have been like my probably unknown obsession. What is a birria taco? Birria taco is a, uh, birria is a specific Mexican type red sauce. Okay. And they kind of dip it in the quesadilla and then they fry the quesadilla with cheese and like shredded pork. And then you use that uh, sauce. It's my mouth is watering. I'm terrible. Uh, But if you can experience birria tacos or B-I-R-R-I-A, they have changed my life. They're incredible. If you're ever in the Midwest or like if you do speaking in Iowa City, there's Hertz Donuts. Hertz Donuts? Yes. I have had them. They're delicious. There's also scratch cupcakes, which is they're not donuts, but they're pretty good, too. I, I don't discriminate against baked goods. I love baked goods. Uh, but I, I will say we have salty donut down here in uh, Miami and Wynwood, and it's really incredible. But the best donut place I've ever had in my life, it's a it's a t- tie between sidecar donuts in Los Angeles and the donut bar in Las Vegas. Those two places. Oh, I'm obsessed. Obsessed. I'll have to check them out. I haven't been to yeah. either of those cities and I'm planning like a U.S. tour. So I'll, I'll check them out when I go. I there. can promise you like we can connect offline and I'll show you some spots, <laughs> some places I've been that have such good food. I can't wait to go back. Yeah. If you're ever in Madison as well, I can suggest some things to you. Awesome. It, just in terms of uh, nutrition, I was reading these uh, articles on how if you have the right uh, nutrition and diet, n- diet, diet and uh, fitness. I don't know why I'm saying like different ways to say nutrition, but um, you can uh, you can like I don't know if that's the right word, but like cure diabetes. And so I'm wondering if um, like it was like 60% effective in terms of like type one diabetes or type two. And I, I was wondering in terms of like, uh, uh, like the health aspect of what you've made, does it follow principles like that, that you've seen that to be effective in terms of like what people should be eating? Like, is your stuff like diabetes friendly, I guess is like a much more concise way of saying that sense. So uh, when I first started speaking, the majority of my talks were in the diabetes space. So doing diabetes education was big. Um, and we'll kind of break down what you just said. Type one is an autoimmune disease uh, that used to just happen at birth and now it happens anywhere. I got diagnosed at 19. Hmm. Type one diabetes is an autoimmune disease and there have been zero autoimmune diseases that have been cured in the history of mankind. There is no possible way to cure an autoimmune disease. We do not have that yet. Once one is cured, tons of them will be cured, but we have not found a way to cure a type one or any autoimmune disease for that matter. So that's out of the running. When it comes to curing type two diabetes, there's a few things on that. I'd say probably about 60% of type two diabetics are lifestyle related factors where their pancreas cannot keep up with the need for insulin production. 40% are genetically predisposed to not producing enough insulin those 40% will never be able to cure their type two diabetes. 60%, we can 
maybe potentially cure them, but more so goes into like remission, so to speak. Because if you're prone to having your beta cells cut off production of insulin, you might always be prone to that. A diet might help maintain that, but it's more treating instead of curing in a, in a better way to look at that. So when you look at people like the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, they're big on trying to re-educate the public and thinking you can't just cure things outright like that. For some people, they'll never need insulin or pills again if they change their diet. Some people might. Mm -hmm. So I never want to get false hope to people, but I will say that diet and exercise can solve a majority of issues, especially in the type two community. Okay. Is there, um, are there things that people should be doing in particular that are type two uh, in general? So it depends on type one or type two, but in general, I think the biggest issue comes from excessive caloric consumption. Um, because there's a, there was a Kansas state nutrition professor who did a study where he ate Twinkies and protein shakes for like <laughs> six days. He lost like 30 pounds and improved his cholesterol and metabolic profile because he was in a caloric deficit. Obviously that's not good, but what he wanted to show was if you're eating less than you need, uh, you're going to be a lot healthier than eating more than what you need, even in a healthy way. So I think the majority of the issue is comes down to portion control and caloric issues. Then it comes to like, okay, if your blood sugar is going extremely high, you need to stop eating pasta and breads and stuff and stuff that spikes it and you need to manage it a little bit better. But, um, I always obviously talk to your doctor and healthcare team. Um, controlling your diet doesn't mean avoiding foods that are delicious. It means controlling the portions of all foods. So I eat, I don't eat what's considered diabetic friendly. Cause I don't even agree with that philosophy. Mm. I think all food is friendly, uh, within portioned limits, you know? Yeah. I, um, my technique is to like be small on breakfast and lunch. And then like, I kind of can eat what I want for dinner. And that seems to work literally out budgeting. So when I explain nutrition to people, especially calories, I'm like, think about it as 50 bucks for the day. Do you want to spend 45 tonight? If so, you can only spend five in the morning. Do you want to spend $5 every hour? Absolutely. No problem. But guess what? Once that 50 bucks is spent, it's spent. You can't spend any more. There's no debt. So I give people the freedom of flexibility. How do you want to spend this 50 bucks? You want to have a pizza? It's 9am. Great. Your 50 bucks is spent. And the rest of the day you can't eat. Yeah. You're going to learn. And then you're gonna be like, oh, damn, I didn't like that. Or guess what? The other way around, it's 9 p.m. and you only spent two bucks. You have to spend 48 more. You have to eat. But I don't, I only want to eat when I'm hungry. Well, when you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. You know, you don't only work when you want to work. You work all the time. Eating is not just of joy and pleasure. It's of necessity. And that goes for both eating too much and not enough. There um. Are there things that you see that people normally get wrong? And that's one of the things that's very confusing um, for people that I listen to. It's like they don't know what to listen to or what to do. And my answer is just like experiment a lot with yourself and figure it out. But I'm just kind of curious for someone who's like uh, very good with fitness. Um, are there things that you, you notice like the, the deficit thing that people typically get wrong in terms of what they're thinking? Yeah. So all diets that are successful share one common principle, and that's caloric control. That's what all common diets have uh, if they're successful. So whether it's high carb, low carb, keto, paleo, anything, they all have the same principle of caloric control. You know, people are like, no, that's not true. I cut out bread and I lost weight. You cut out bread. Bread has calories. You lost weight. You lost weight because you cut out calories. <laughs> it's literally science. That's how this works is science. Weight loss is not magic. 
it's not a fad. They're like, oh, I switched to keto and I lost so much weight. Well, that's because you can only eat so much fatty process or fatty foods because it's very satiating, you know, and you cut out all carbs, which is calories. So you cut out calories. Like, oh, I, I eat paleo. So I only eat like natural foods and I cut out, cut out. What'd you cut out? Again, cut out <laughs> calories. There it is. Yeah. All successful diets share the same principle. So don't get discouraged by what diet you should do. Start tracking what you're currently doing right now. And if what you're doing is causing you to gain weight, we know that we just need to do some less of that. So eat slightly less. And if you start losing weight, great. And then if you plateau, maybe eat slightly less. And then I'll see eventually, I think it's a good idea to work with someone who knows nutrition, whether it's someone like myself, uh, I don't really do that anymore, but a registered dietitian or anything. So you can learn the right way to do it. If your car breaks down, most people go to a mechanic. You know, yeah. if you're sick, most people go to a doctor, but for some damn reason, when you want to lose weight, you're like, I could do this myself. <laughs> Why do we do that? Why not learn and skip all of the pain, you know, learn from person who knows it really well and not just the person at LA fitness or a crappy gym in your hometown, you know, maybe do a little research and find who you need to talk to a one hour conversation with someone who knows what they're doing is going to save you a year's worth of pain through dieting and only eating tuna and applesauce, you know? That sounds horrible. I don't know. It's if it, pretty is, that, yeah. is that a real diet? Tuna and applesauce? There is oh, quite a few wow. diets. There. They're so restrictive. The biggest advice I could give for anyone who wants to start a fitness journey is don't get obsessed with the big end goal. Um, running an ultra marathon starts with one step. The same way getting to your upstairs you know, living room is one step. Everything requires one step. Just take the step and then take the next one. That's it. Like It's the first step. That's all you need to do. Don't be obsessed with, I have to do so much paralysis by analysis. I have to do so much that I'm in doing nothing. Hmm. Go to the gym and walk on the treadmill for 15 minutes. Do that again, maybe one or two more times that week. And then high five yourself, you know, cut out the candy and the soda one day a week, then two, then three, drink a little bit more water every day, little steps, little steps, compound effect of little steps help. Instead of saying, I can only eat boiled chicken and broccoli and brown rice, even though I hate all three of those things, I'm going to go to the gym seven days a week for two hours. I have two personal train. You're going to burn out. I would rather you be 80% on track for a year rather than 100% on track for a week. Yeah. Uh, something I will add, especially when you're going to see a doctor, is something I found very, very effective is if you have like a chart or something that you've been like trying, especially if, like you're, if it's not working out, you can kind of show what you've been doing to the doctor and it's like, like, uh, even if it's like written down on a sheet of paper or a Google doc, like I do that with all my doctors and I see doctors a lot and they'll, they'll literally look at it and like, okay, I know exactly where you can, you know, you take like a 40 minute, like, did you try this? <laughs> did, you, did you try? Let me poke you a couple more times around yeah. some blood. And then they, they like, I've, I've had a doctor come in from like, uh, uh, come in after reading it and it's like, I know exactly what's wrong and this is what we're going to do. And normally it'd be like a two hour conversation and it, you know, and maybe you get somewhere where it's good. So yeah. if you can cut, come out, go like try a bunch of stuff, like bring it to the doctors, you know, use their brain. Uh, they don't, their, their job is to help, but sometimes you got to help them help you. I For think sure. it's like and a good thing. Their specialty is not necessarily diet. So you can see what help they can give, but I highly suggest save up a little bit and consult with a registered dietitian one time, hmm. show them what you're doing. Just like you're saying, show them what you're doing. They're like, okay, you're a little deficient in this nutrient. And this calorie amount is a little too low for you. So we need to switch that. Now you know exactly what to do by someone who specializes in that. You know, you wouldn't go to like someone who has a car to fix your car. You go to the person who fixes cars, you know, 
So I think it's really important to know that like, if you don't know enough to solve the problem, like skip all of the hardship of trying to learn. If you had to have brain surgery, you wouldn't learn how to have brain surgery. You wouldn't learn how to do brain surgery. You would literally go to someone who learned how to do it a long time ago, you know? So uh, don't be obsessed with trying to do everything yourself. It's yeah. You're not a one-man army or one-woman army, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I know we're getting close to the end, so I'm going to give us our last couple of questions on this and have some rapid-fire ones. Um, cool. In terms of peak performance, I know this is something you talked about a lot. I'm curious. I think peak performance, uh, in my opinion, is a lot mental than it is physical in terms of, like, being able to do it. Are there, and we kind of have been talking about this a little bit throughout, but are there um, things that you do to keep yourself mentally strong at, that you've noticed through your journey that, um, that you recommend other people, I guess? Like, I mean, I think it's important to find an ideology that you can align with. Like we were talking about earlier, stoicism, that created a foundation. Um, who would be able to run faster, the person who starts on hard ground or the person who starts on soft sand? that foundation is super pivotal to being able to start, let alone keep going. Knowing that uh, stoic philosophies help the way I manage stress and like emotional disarray gives me a position of strength to start from. So when I say read more, I hate the idea of it being cliche and like read a book, like skim through it, honestly, find the summaries of books and go through that. Watch videos on YouTube where you're like, not just motivational rah-rah stuff, that might be your thing. That's great if it is. For me, it's not personally. And I found that out. I don't like motivational, kill it, go, ooh, yeah. Some people love that shit. I don't. I like to hear someone say, okay, focus on what you can control and not what you can't. And then I sit down and I'm like, damn, that's that's real. That's true. Okay, can I control this? No. Okay, what can I do? Focus on that. Because before I was everywhere and I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? What if, what if, what if, what if? That narrowed my focus. And I feel like peak performance gets dialed down to pinpoint precision in action. And when you can pinpoint that mentally, you can pinpoint it a lot better physically, you know? A, a question I ask myself, uh, which is similar to some questions that you ask yourself as well, is um, it's like, is this is the thought I'm having now gonna be important in six months? Yeah. Am, I just, am I just like imagining scenarios? And it's like, yeah. no, this isn't gonna matter at all. Like this is probably isn't gonna happen. And then uh, I stopped the negative cycle I was on. And then it'll start back in five minutes. It's like, oh, then I notice it. And then it's, it comes back maybe 10 minutes. And then after, over time, you slowly, uh, you, you, you build yourself noticing that you're doing that and it helps. It's effort. It's, a, yeah. it's so mental, I, mental fortitude sounds super cheesy. Um, the ability to domesticate thoughts or control thoughts or feelings is a skill. And any skill needs to be practiced, built. And to be honest, any skill starts with being really crappy at it. You know, when I first started recording videos, I had no clue what I was doing. And it took me a long time to upgrade my system, my processes to learn, to practice, you know, uh, same thing with speaking. You can watch all of the videos on YouTube you want about speaking, but to be a good speaker, you have to speak. You have to practice speaking. You have to practice sucking and you have to practice getting better. But if you don't do it, it'll never get better. So just reading, just listening about being healthy, just doing those things isn't enough. You have to actively be in it, sit with it, and have that thought come up and manage it, and then do it again over and over and over. Because a year from now is going to be a year from now, no matter what. You're either going to be better at what you've been practicing, or you're going to be right where you want to, right where you don't want to be again a year from now. And the difference is if you decide to put in the work 
moment by moment, day by day, you know? Yeah. I think sometimes I feel like people are afraid to be alone with themselves. That's like they have, they keep themselves activated with the phones or, or anything around them just so they can never like be unstimulated. So they, do, they just don't want to sit alone in a room and think about what they're doing. Or Stimulation just like, is it, can yeah. be avoidance for sure. Stimulation yeah. can definitely be avoidance, but it can also be habit too. Yeah. So it's hard when it's both. If you have a habit of avoidance, that takes effort to break. And when you're breaking uh, habits, it's already uncomfortable. But when you're breaking habits that also make you uncomfortable on top of the habit you're breaking, it takes extra effort. And we have to learn that being uncomfortable temporarily is a part of the process of growth in any aspect of life. Um, we have to be willing to sit with it, not run from it. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, these are going to be very chopping terms transitions. The, the, I have my one question on the Titan Games TV show. Um, you you obviously trained a lot for it and you had a lot of fun. You know, weirdly enough, I actually remember seeing you on TV. Oh, that's and, wild. Yeah, I was I was rewatching. I was like, Eamon, I watched this. When he was going crazy. on, I was like, this guy's great. And so, that's I, crazy. yeah, I was like, what a small world. Uh, but I'm curious, um, in terms of your training, when you look back on it, is there anything you think you could have uh, done to improve your odds of doing better? Now, I wrote down like maybe doing yoga or something so you'd be more flexible or something. But I, I'm curious, uh, how would you improve your performance? Like, what, How would you train to make yourself better in that? I situation? think uh, there's definitely stuff I could have trained for more. Like one climbing would have been more, would be relevant. I was just excited to be on that show. I had no clue what to expect. None of us did. Um, I think I could have built like more cardio capacity. We didn't have too much time to train, to be honest. We only had like a month or two to train. Um, and I'm a power lifter. I lift heavyweight one time and then I take a break. So hmm. that was very different for me. Um, the situation that I was in, I was against someone who's a professional climber and that was harder for me as a person with a disability to climb. Uh, but I think I fully won the mission that I had was sharing the message yeah. behind hiding and stopping hiding. So that's why I was so happy after that. I was like, I did it and I lost, but I got to share my message and they shared my, my message, even though I lost and I was the only person to lose and have that message shared. So I was like, I won, you know, mm -hmm. and it's crazy because there's some people that were on that show that did very well that are no longer doing well because they didn't, their mission stopped at the obstacle and not at the message. And that's what I try and encourage people to don't make your finish line be superficial. There's a lot more that we can give than what we do, you know? And I think it's really important to know what's the long-term mission. Yeah. There's a, a, there's a new TV series called Sandman, which is based on Neil Gaiman's. It's a really great uh, comic book, but it's a really good Netflix series and they have an episode. I'm going to spoil a little bit. People don't beat me up. Um, where he just, he, he had like a, a mission to recover some things and get back what he lost. And there's an entire episode of him just being dour because he met his objective and he didn't know what to do with himself anymore. And so like I can, literally, I can add to that though, because I, when I hit my goals, like I hit my big deadlift, I competed in bodybuilding last year and I ended up winning. And I was like, that was my lifelong goal. And then I went through this like phase of depression. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I hit my goals. I never thought I would do that. And I got to a point where I was like, what do I do? I've literally accomplished this, all the stuff that I said I wanted to. And it, it kind of sucked in a weird way. It was like depressing. It was like, what the hell? But then I had to reset new goals and like, you know, restart and all that. But 
it's a weird position to be in, but uh, it's nice looking back. It just, it's hard. It's a different kind of hard. Yeah. Well, it was interesting in the episode, his sister death came to help him get out of it. So it's, it's very interesting in a stoic way that it death is, is what, it, yeah. I love that. It's almost the yeah. idea of like dying, your former self dying, but you, you completed, but maybe death is winning. Like I, we could get into a whole morbid the, conversation about the, that, but it was, it was, it's very interesting. Cause it, it, what like, is it called the show? Sandman. Sandman it's really okay. good. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, the first that sounds fascinating. It's really good. I love the graphic novel as well. But um, yeah, that episode, I'll I'll rewatch that anytime because you you go through basically like an episode of like the death going and doing her job of like reaping people. And it's like, it's so sad. (laughs) Like there's a moment where like we walk in to see like a family doing something and and my wife's like, they're going to kill the baby, aren't they? (laughs) Oh, no. It's one of those shows. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, They don't don't pull their punches. It's it's very good. I recommend it. Um, But it talks about some of the things we were talking about as well. If people want to have like a a fun version of what we're saying, even though that's not all that fun. Um, So uh, speaking about speaking, uh, you want to help other speakers speak uh, or become as a profession as their number one thing. Um, And you want to do that next year, which is in a couple of years, a couple of months. Uh, How, how do you, how, how will you do that? How will you help people? So uh, I have another mentor that I work with that we're planning to potentially go into business together doing this and putting a course out there for people to work with us directly on how to set up your business, how to earn your first five, $10,000 as a speaker, Um, whether that's the full year amount or a specific talk amount, there's principles that you need to do that I wish I could have taught my former speaker self five years ago on exactly what to do to become a paid speaker and how to build yourself a business around providing impact to people. So it's gonna be a step-by-step course on everything from setting up your business to the fundamentals that you need to do to building your talk and then actually getting hired to speak. Is there in a, in a meta way, if you were like sitting back and there was someone out here uh, listening to us um, and you could just like make the speaker, you know, any speaker you want, what is this? What, what is a topic you've always wanted to hear about? Like if you could have like a class couple of speakers in front of you, um, what is the topic that you've, you've never heard anyone speak about that you love someone to speak about? And maybe someone listening is like, Hey, I'm a nerd on that. And, and they so, can come talk to uh, you. Kurt Vonnegut, he, I believe he passed away, but he did a talk about the shapes of stories. And I've been obsessed with that, obsessed with the idea that stories are shapes. Um, You can write the shape of Harry Potter the same way you can write the shape of Star Wars or Cinderella. They all have different shapes and different value points in a shape format. So I love the psychology behind storytelling. And I love anyone who speaks on that, whether it's Vanessa Van Edwards, uh, Kurt Vonnegut. There's a few different people who speak on it, but I would love to hear more of that. I'm fascinated with psychology of communication. Have you looked at like the Hero of a Thousand, thousand Faces? Hero of a Thousand Faces? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I have that in my, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a little uh, dry, but it, it's dry, it's fun but too. It's, it, it's good information. It's just, it's hard to get through sometimes. Good yeah. for long drives. Good for long yeah. drives. Well, uh, in terms of audio, it was originally lecture. So you can just watch lecture. Oh, I that's think cool. they still have it up there. Yeah, I think that's it was- really cool. I think I was watching on YouTube, so you, you can even get it free. Like YouTube awesome. is so great. Yeah. Um, so then uh, when will people be able to access this? Like, is it like- I can't Q- confirm, but I could definitely say the goal is to have it by like beginning of Q2 next year. Okay, so, yeah. so pretty and soon. Anyone can reach out to me in terms of like Instagram. If they have questions about wanting to be a speaker or even considering it, realizing that it can be a, a very high paying profession. Some people care about the money. 
I care about most the impact and it's so much, it's fulfilling. So that's one of the scariest questions to ask people is like, Hey, are you fulfilled in your life? That's a terrifying question to get. And it's a terrifying question answer to hear, because if they're not, it's sad, you know, like I, I feel like everyone wants to be fulfilled and there are things we can do. Some people I truly believe are meant to be storytellers and I want to help those people. Now, if I can also help those people become six figure speakers, that's incredible. And that would be a huge goal because financial freedom on top of impact and storytelling to me as a speaker, that's the ultimate life, you know, and that's what I want to help people with. And storytelling is like a, a like storytelling and being like a scientist or things that I think are just inherently human. Like if you imagine this 10,000 or more years ago, um, we were just all sitting around a campfire telling stories and there was like yeah. a person, like a bard who would just like, like Homer apparently was a, a, an audible story that was told that was eventually written down. And we could, we figured that out be, based on like how it, it's structured. It's, it's, it's written in a way for someone to remember and speak it. That's so it's incredible. just, it's, it's very interesting to see like, which is just to say like storytelling is just like innately human. And I, I, I also a, agree. Everyone is yeah. a storyteller. We tell our, we tell, I think it was like five to 10 stories a day on average. You tell a story of what happened to you earlier, what happened to you in a former like time in your life. You've told many stories on this podcast already, you know, everyone tells stories. So everyone has the ability to be a storyteller. Now question is what's the message behind it and how can that help other people? So that's what I want to help people uncover. Okay. Sweet. Um, so you've been interviewed by a number of people. If you could go back and flip the script so that you were interviewing them, is there, is there like of the people you've met, like something you wanted to ask them? Like if you could be the interviewer and be like, Oh, now you have to answer my questions. The, so the first person that pops up that I, if he listens to this, uh, he would probably laugh. There's a guy named Steve Sims. Do you know who he is? No. He made a book called blue fishing and he basically provides connections for people say you're like i want mariah carey to sing a song to me while i'm eating uh church's chicken he would make that happen he okay. is a luxury person who makes things happen obviously for a price but he makes things happen and uh i didn't know who he was when he reached out to me he is very famous he reached <laughs> out to me and interviewed me on his podcast and i just had a normal talk with him and i was like oh that was really cool and he offered, he's like, oh, if you ever want to connect me, I'm like, oh, yeah, man, of course, of course. Like a month go by and I see him at like one of these big like conventions on social media. And I'm just like, wait, I know that guy. He was that little guy who interviewed me. And I'm like, oh, my God, he is he is big. He's like super famous and like he has so much information. And I was like, damn, I really let that go. If I could go back, I would flip the script and I would interview him. And uh, I would love to find out more about his life. And I'm sure I could if I reached out to him. But uh, one of those funny cases where I just, he was so down to earth that I had no clue his status. Yeah. I I think most people who are actually quite large in a metaphorical way are, they don't really feel the need to show it off. They just kind of go about their that, lives. Though. Yeah, It was great. Cause it, same thing with the rock. When I met him, like it's a natural conversation like this. And then they leave and you're like, Oh wait, that person was like a big deal in their space, you know? So it was pretty cool, but definitely a kind of a funny moment. Yeah. Um, so on your uh, LinkedIn, one of the things that it said that you like to talk about is how diversity without inclusion is a scam. And so I just wanted, I know we don't have that much time, but I was just kind of curious, yeah. um, what did you mean by that? To, to wrap that up, um, just having a diverse uh, culture, whether it's a okay. workplace culture or friends, just being diverse without actually including them is like inviting them to the dance, but never actually inviting them to dance. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Okay. 
That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that yeah. yeah makes sense. So yeah. that drives me nuts. When when I mean, it happens to me all the time as a person with a disability. I they're like, oh, we want to include you in this commercial. I'm like, oh, why? Because I have a disability. You know. Then they have another person who's black, another person who's a woman, another person who's gay, and I'm like, oh, you're really just checking all the boxes, huh? Is that real inclusion? Or is that just diversity as a divisive way to show differences? And that's, to me, true inclusion is removing diversity because it's naturally done. So that's the goal is to remove diversity and inclusion in general, because if everyone is inclusive, we don't have to talk about being inclusive. It's just Mm. natural. It's normal. That makes sense. And um, do you have a second favorite tattoo? I I know she have a bunch. Got this one, this eye tattoo. There's two Uh, eyes there two irises yeah i just got this one like a week ago and it was like 10 hours straight it was awful but it was great uh, i love art so i have edgar Allan poe on my forearm that's like probably one of my favorites you know um but i also have hercules and the 12 tribulations a lot of it was related to overcoming adversity or i loved gothic romanticism era writing um mm-hmm. a lot of the art i have is dark which is funny because i'm very charismatic like kind of light person but the art I get is like aggressive. Yeah, you might like the book. Uh, you probably read this, but um, A Man's Search for Meaning. It's very dark. It's very, it is very yes. dark. But it's incredible in terms of like processing perspectives and internal narratives, which is a lot of what I talk about. Yeah. What is a, a problem you have that you'd love people's help with? Um, a problem that I have that I would love people's help with. Um, I would say... <laughs> organization organization that is probably i am a very creative chaotic person i thrive in chaos i would love to not i would love to develop strategies for organization as someone who is very creative that would be a very good help to me okay is there a specific thing that you would you are struggling with in that creating a system uh, having some sort of life system because i don't have a regular nine to five i randomly work sometimes it's a lot sometimes it's very little so i need an adaptable system that doesn't feel like jail but also makes me productive uh Mm. because a lot of people will see the stuff that i've done and it seems like amazing but i know there's so much more that i could and should do that i let go of because of a lack of organization and uh that's one of my things i want to work on sweet is there a question you have that is unanswered which is not the previous one uh, that someone listening could answer for you. It could, the one I always gave, gave uh, used to give was like, um, if the Big Bang Theory didn't, if the Big Bang did not happen, what would be here without it? Okay, so like a question that I don't have answered that someone could possibly answer. Yes, my bad. Um, does everything happen for a reason or do we just make the reason up? Hmm. That's that's a big one, because for the longest time, I believed nothing happens for a reason, because kids who are three years old with cancer die. You can't tell me there's a reason unless it's to selfishly improve your life in a motivating way, which is not right. You know, does everything happen for a reason or as humans, do we believe in this full circle theory of we need to provide reason for completion? Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 Are there, um, we've been talking about books this entire time. Are there go-to books that you recommend to people? Yes. Okay. Uh, first one, boom, hundred percent, 101 essays that'll change the way you think by Brianna Weiss. 
She is my favorite author. It was Ryan Holiday. Now he is number two because her book, that book is a game changer. She also has The Mountain Is You, which was incredible. Um, Ryan Holiday, The Obstacle Is The Way. That book changed everything for me into Stoic philosophy. Uh, the Like Switch, which we talked about earlier uh, by this FBI agent. And was there another one? I have a ton of books here, but I think those are the ones that really like stand out to me. A book that I recommend to you based on your love of story is uh, Save the Cat. And there's a bunch of them, but there's one on script, uh, screen, screen play writing that's really good. And they talk if about you like send me all of your story recommendations. I would love yes, that. Just I'll make a note. Email me. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm always, always open to reading new stuff. Other than um, the new speaking helping thing that'll be happening in Q2, <laughs> is there anything else coming up that you'd like to highlight for people? Um, working on the audiobook now for my book. So my book's available on Amazon called The Upper Hand, uh, mostly because I love making dad jokes about having a disability. But uh, getting the upper hand about yourself is like super important for me. Um, I am going to be working on another book for next year as well. Hopefully the end of next year. Uh, our protein bar company is going really well. I would say the main thing is just uh, speaking and putting out more content on TikTok and Instagram and uh, just continuing to provide people value around mental health, especially for men who think vulnerability and mental health is not allowed. And that was Chris Rudin. Check him out on chrisrudin.com. Also remember to subscribe, share, comment, and tell your friends. And on our website, learnwithhold.com, you can see all of the episodes and see where all were found. But basically, if you have a, a podcast or you're on your YouTube, you know, you'll be able to check us out. Thank you for staying curious and have a great rest of your day.